This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. Just like Rockney and Gipper, the best things in life and football often come in pairs. Onward to Victory is proud to be paired with our sponsor, WCScreens.com, the absolute gold standard in the screen printing and embroidery industry. Hey, look no further than our friends at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. How about an idea so nice that I am going to do it twice? Well, at least twice. Welcome to the second edition of Alex's Irish Anecdotes. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about Notre Dame's connection to one of the most famous magazines in publishing history, the legacy and consequence of a certain Rockney-era player known as One Play O'Brien, A close look at a bizarre 1912 incident where students were expelled for doing the snake dance around campus to celebrate a couple baseball victories, and finally celebrating a century of Notre Dame on the radio with a look at the school's first forays into the medium. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and welcome to the show and to episode number 65. I'm happy you're here with me today at Onward to Victory, your favorite Notre Dame podcast since 2019. So the last episode proved to be pretty popular out of the shoot, uh, so much so that I decided to go ahead and do another one. I called it Alex's Irish Anecdotes, and it was inspired by a column I write and will continue to write for our website at onwardtovictory.blog, which was instead of kind of one long, hopefully interesting deep dive, I picked four shorter, I think equally interesting topics and just kind of shotgun through them. I got to tell you, it was a ton of fun to put together, and I'm glad you seem to enjoy them as well. But I was also happy that I had the wherewithal to call last episode Alex's Irish Anecdotes Volume 1, which left the door open for more episodes like it. So if you haven't listened to Volume 1, it's Episode 64, it's just the last one, so make sure you do so at some point. So I have four more topics today to continue to round out our collective Notre Dame expertise. And trust me, you're going to like these. But before we begin, a couple short housekeeping notes. Hey, however you're listening to this, please make sure you're subscribed to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. That way you are alerted to all of the new episodes right when they come out. And if you're on an iPhone and you're using the Purple Podcast app, hey, please rate the show. Hopefully five stars, but give the show a rate or review and that'll help immensely for uh, us to continue to get noticed. I got to give a quick shout out to the Consensus All-Americans. These are the folks who support the show with their monetary donations. And these kind people are Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, and Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. 
If you'd like to get your name called as a consensus All-American, feel free to visit the virtual tip jars at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for ongoing monthly support. And by the way, head over to the show's Facebook page. I am showcasing our 2022 t-shirt designed and printed by our good friends at wcscreens.com. If you're interested in purchasing an Onward to Victory shirt, feel free to jump over to paypal.me slash onward to victory, leave your size and address, and I will get you in the next order. We've actually had a couple folks come through since the last episode to order one. So first of all, I'm very appreciative of that. And if you haven't ordered one already, please jump in if you'd like one. Love to see your order come through. And hey, if you have one, take a picture of yourself wearing it and share it with the audience. So we're going to get this thing going here right after this quick break. First up, we are going to talk about a gentleman named John Brisbane Walker. Walker was born on September 10, 1847, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in an area of the state known as the Monongahela River Valley. Elizabeth, Pennsylvania is technically where he grew up. Anyway, if one were to do some digging on Walker, they would find that he was a renowned inventor, innovator, industrialist, and philanthropist. He actually donated 40 acres of land to the Jesuits in Denver, Colorado in 1887. And this tract would eventually become the nucleus of Regis University, which still stands today. Even before that, he bought a 500-acre tract of land in Denver, and he developed Colorado's first amusement park. And here's one for my avid concert goers, and I know there's a few in the audience. In the first decade of the 20th century, it was Walker who first envisioned a stage and amphitheater in what he thought was the most perfect acoustical setting. This would later become Red Rocks. So that's, of course, one of the most famous concert venues in America to this day. And that was an idea conceived by this gentleman, John Brisbane Walker. So, very special guy. He also got into automobile manufacturing, and he even sponsored the first auto race in the United States in 1895. Not for nothing, he was also named the first president of the Automobile Manufacturers Association. And he just kind of got into everything, and it's pretty damn amazing, honestly. Now, if one were to look at his education at least as it's portrayed in the history books uh, and pretty much everywhere online, it will tell you that he attended Georgetown University and West Point. Oh, uh, because he also served as an advisor to the Chinese Army for a spell. But the issue, well, that really wasn't jiving with what I read in the Notre Dame school newspaper, The Scholastic. So real quick, full disclosure, I will be the first to tell you I didn't know this guy existed until I read the news brief in the September 15th, 1900 issue of the Notre Dame School newspaper. It reads as follows, quote, Among the visitors to Notre Dame during the hot months was Mr. John Brisbane Walker of New York. Mr. Walker is an old student of Notre Dame and remembers the college, 
now grown to such large proportions, when it could boast of no such structures that adorn our campus today. Since leaving his alma mater, Mr. Walker has attained great literary prominence and is at present the editor of Cosmopolitan Magazine, end quote. I had no idea that Cosmopolitan Magazine was even around in 1900, and much less this obvious Notre Dame connection. But according to Mr. Walker's obituary from 1931, he bought the magazine in 1889 for $360,000. But at the time, it was not like the Cosmopolitan we know today, which is kind of mostly aimed for women, but it was mostly family-friendly. The publication was filled with colorful illustrations and serialized stories. Perhaps most famously, H.G. Wells's classic, War of the Worlds, was first printed in Cosmopolitan magazine in 1897, which is just wild. But again, everything I read, well, it had only talked about his time spent at Georgetown, then West Point. So what gives? Surely Walker wasn't pulling a student reporter's leg, right? But as I soon found out, he certainly was not. I found John Walker from Elizabeth, Pennsylvania in the annual catalog, which served as kind of the school's muster roll, directory, and curriculum guide all rolled into one. So he actually did attend Notre Dame in 1862-63 and the 1863-1864 school years. So during the American Civil War, our man attended high school at Notre Dame as a member of what was then known as the Junior Department. When Walker was 15 through 17, he was at Notre Dame. Not only that, I also found later where he was given an honorary doctorate degree by the school in 1894, so 30 years after he had graduated from high school. Yet nowhere that I could find lists this guy as an alumnus of the school, which I thought was really interesting. Like, I don't know, maybe that actually needs to change. So Walker, among all the other things, if you will, also owned Cosmopolitan Magazine, and he sold the publication in 1905 to William Randolph Hearst. If that name rings a bell and you might have heard about him in history class, he was also a prolific publisher, but he is probably most famous for what is called yellow journalism, which is where uh, journalism practices and ethics weren't quite on the level, so to speak. But when Walker bought Cosmo, its monthly readership was only 16,000. This is, again, according to his obituary from the Charleston Gazette. However, when he sold it to Hearst, it was at 150,000 monthly readers. So he almost multiplied it over 10 times. So, the next time you're in your grocery store checkout lane and you see that latest issue of Cosmopolitan. Don't forget its wildly interesting connection to Notre Dame and to this man, John Brisbane Walker, who seems like he was far too fascinating to be forgotten in the pages of history. And oh boy, we're doing the snake dance next, right after this.
So the snake dance, let's just get this one out of the way right now because I have no doubt some of you are probably at home wondering what in the hell that is. But it's basically a conga line, which will probably help clear the air for most people. But just in case you're like, I also don't know what a conga line is, no worries. That is when participants, and so the snake dance is when participants would form one long skinny line where each person puts their hands on the shoulders of the person in front of them and they walk, often dancing or trying to dance in a somewhat synchronized fashion while kind of whooping, hollering, and cheering. Yeah, so it's about as cool as it sounds. However, that is me speaking as somebody in 2022. In 1912, this dance was the bee's knees. So between April 24th and 26th, 1912, the Notre Dame baseball team squared off in a three-game set against the University of Arkansas at home. So it's always good to be mindful that baseball was, and of course still is, particularly after the Irish's success on the diamond here in 2022, it's, it was very popular with the students. And baseball actually preceded intercollegiate football on campus by a couple decades, actually. So after Notre Dame and Arkansas had split the first two games, the score was tied 9-9 in the ninth inning of the third game, and the Irish ended up winning in walk-off fashion 10-9 to take the series two games to one. The fans, mostly comprised of students, were so stoked that, you guessed it, they did the snake dance all throughout campus. But to be fair, their enthusiasm and their exuberance was well-backed. The local South Bend paper called it, quote, the most remarkable game ever at Cartier Field, end quote, which of course served as Notre Dame's baseball field as well as its football field at the time. And the school archive actually has a photograph of the students participating in the aforementioned snake dance. It's really impressive, actually. But since this is 1912, again, it really makes me wonder if the student Knut Rockney was somewhere along the line of the snake dance. While this is possible, those of us who knew Rock really well, yeah, highly doubt it. <laughs> but do you want to know who was not impressed by the student's antics? Well, that would be Notre Dame President Father John Cavanaugh. That night at dinner, he issued a memorandum and made an announcement around campus that there was to be no more snake dance under any circumstances. So the students kind of stew over this development while eating their suppers, and there was a scheduled bonfire to be held at dusk on campus that evening. So the students kind of looked at each other and apparently said, to hell with it. They formed an even larger snake dance line that evening and continued to parade around campus. Perhaps they thought the dark would provide an adequate subterfuge and they couldn't be identified by the school's administration, but that was not the case. And Father Cavanaugh, again, not impressed. How unimpressed was he? Dude, he expelled 20 students over the stunt, sent them home. And the students were none too happy about their mates getting the boot over what they thought to be a fairly innocuous dance and one that they were just thinking they were spreading school spirit. And I'm actually not sure what could have been viewed as offensive about the dance, but 
There were quite a number of colleges and universities at this time who had strict no dancing policies. So maybe Notre Dame was among them back in 1912. Well, actually, there are still colleges 110 years later with strict no dancing policies. For instance, Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, for one. I think you actually may need a special permit to dance on that particular campus. And I am being a little playful here, but that's a little strange if you ask me. But the students considered protesting, actually, in downtown South Bend. But while this didn't materialize, they did protest in another way. They boycotted the school's athletic events. Again, the school archives has some really neat photographs of the baseball team playing. And there is exactly, from what I could see, one person in the grandstand watching the game. Other than a couple folks who pulled up their cars to watch the contest, probably South Bend residents, there appears to be exactly one other person in the grandstand during the next series the baseball team played against Rose Poly, which is now known as Rose Holman Institute of Technology. So there you go. Notre Dame students, 1912, expelled for the snake dance. I never did figure out what happened to the expelled students either. But, interestingly, something else that I did find. When the annual baseball alumni game was played a couple months later in June, the alumni insisted on doing the snake dance around campus. This was perhaps a sign of solidarity with the students. 100 years of Notre Dame radio, right after this. first college football game to be broadcast on the radio was from October 8, 1921. It was actually an early edition of one of the games we know today as the Backyard Brawl, which sees West Virginia University and the University of Pittsburgh square off. So the local affiliate was KDKAM in Pittsburgh. A gentleman by the name of Harold Arlen had the call and Pitt won the game 21-13. So what about Notre Dame? One of the earliest instances I could find Notre Dame using the radio was actually not for an athletic event, but rather for fundraising. So this comes by way of a May 20th, 1922 issue of the school newspaper. It reads as follows, quote, Our readers will doubtless be interested in the following address of Reverend Dr. Burns, president of the university which was broadcasted by radio from the Westinghouse Station in Chicago at the opening of the Notre Dame Endowment Drive in the Chicago Territory on the evening of May the 8th. Those interested in the development of wireless communication were impressed by the speaker's remark concerning Notre Dame's part in some of the earliest experiments in aerial telegraphy. It is estimated that more than 100,000 persons heard this announcement of the Notre Dame Drive by means of the radio receivers scattered throughout the country. End quote. So an endowment drive, what, what would that mean? Well, a school's endowment is essentially a pool of assets that the college or university should be able to use for operations and operating costs in perpetuity, in other words, forever. And it is comprised almost completely, or at least mostly, of individual donations. 
So think of it this way. Uh, typically, an endowment fund has a spending policy of between 4 and 5%. So if a university has an endowment of $100 million, say, that would mean the endowment would kick back 4 to $5 million per year each year to help the school with operating costs. That's kind of a simple look at it, but you get the gist. It's a huge piece of a school's sustainability, and it's no surprise Notre Dame deployed the radio in one of her largest alumni markets to help build their endowment during these early days. Uh, but by the way, take a deep breath. In 2021, Notre Dame had an endowment of around $18 billion, plus or minus depending on the stock performance. Uh, I don't know what the exact details of their endowment is, and nor am I an attorney, so I probably wouldn't even begin to understand it. But even drawing at the modest 4% out of their endowment would mean uh, $720 million this year. That alone would cover nearly half of the school's published $1.5 billion yearly budget. Uh, thank you for your patience on this. I have worked both in higher education and charitable giving, and so this is kind of a wheelhouse for me. So Notre Dame uses the radio in May 1922 to help give their school's endowment a boost. The football team, on the other hand, had never used the radio. And for those Notre Dame fans who wanted to tune into the game but couldn't make it out to Cartier Field, they kind of did the next best thing. Or if the team was at an away game, they kind of did the best they could manage, uh, which was gathering at popular hangouts where you could hear play-by-play -play action by way of someone reading telegraph dispatches. As you may imagine, this was done often at watering holes or cigar stores, so shout out to Hully and Mike's of South Bend, who routinely pulled sizable crowds for big games. But this soon progressed into what was called a grid graph, where a large football field-shaped board covered in small light bulbs would light up to track the progress of the football, and would even have things like forward pass, end run, fumble, or touchdown that would light up to help curate the action as well. But it was homecoming 1922 against Indiana University that Notre Dame decided to try its hand at broadcasting football by radio. And why not give it a try? The popularity of the Notre Dame football team had really ascended under their charismatic head coach, Rockney. So the game against Indiana was on November 4th, 1922. So again, exactly 100 years ago this year. Interestingly, perhaps the student newspaper may have spurred university officials into action. A small headline in the October 21st, 1922 paper lamented, quote, you can't cheer the rock men by radio, end quote. So that was just a little over two weeks from when the first game would actually be broadcast. So I wouldn't be surprised if this passive bemoaning was orchestrated by Rockne himself, who was an innovator and master promoter. And I have no doubt that he was forward thinking and seeing the inherent value of radio. So the game, of course, was held at Cartier Field, and it was broadcasted over local South Bend radio station WGAZ which is now WSBT. But the Irish won the football game 27-0 over their in-state rival Hoosiers. Fullback Paul Kastner scored three touchdowns, and Kastner not only played football, but 
Also baseball, and for you Notre Dame hockey fans, Kastner actually served as one of the earliest head coaches for the hockey team as well. He coached the team to a 19-5-1 record while he was on campus, and that was between 1919 and 1923. And he later pitched for the Chicago White Sox in 1923 as well. So quite an athlete. But the first radio broadcast had a real issue. This is according to the school archives, quote, It is unknown whether anyone even heard the broadcast. As radio was a brand new medium, few households actually owned radios, and there were no ratings reports at the time. End quote. So even if the first game was listened to by a few people, if, if anyone at all, radio soon exploded. And Notre Dame games were soon carried by radio stations in Chicago and New York. Rockney was very strategic in what games were broadcast and where they were broadcasted. And it was during this time in the 1920s that the Notre Dame football team continued to see a rapid ascent. So the now mighty Notre Dame radio network was established a quarter century after that first game against Indiana by former Irish player Joe Boland in 1947. While the merging of stations and streaming has obviously reduced the number and need for local affiliates today in 2022, at one point, there were nearly 200 affiliates in the Notre Dame radio network. Just wild. So hey, next time you tune into the Notre Dame radio network, don't forget it was 100 years ago this year that Notre Dame's first attempt at radio was staged. An ode to Johnny One Play O'Brien, right after this. This anecdote is thanks to my new friend. His name is Andy Nickel. Some of you actually may be familiar with him, but Andy is a new listener of the show, a South Bend native and a Notre Dame alumnus. We've been emailing kind of back and forth, and he sent me some really good ideas, uh, one of which was covering Mr. Johnny One Play O'Brien. But Andy has a wonderful collection of Notre Dame memorabilia, which he used to help curate the book he wrote last year, which he called... Men, Moments, and Myths. Andy was even kind enough to send me a copy of the book, so I'm very, very appreciative. And again, thanks for the idea. Uh, the more I dove into Mr. O'Brien, the more I realized that he was absolutely worthy of some time here on one of these episodes. So one of the chapters in Men, and Men Moments, and Myths is about Johnny O'Brien. So as Andy and I were emailing back and forth about him, he brought up a really good point, and he said, quote, the legacy of one play extends a lot further than anyone could have envisioned in the 20s or 30s. I think his legacy is so much greater than almost anyone has thought about or realized. So as I stopped to think about it, he was absolutely right. I'd say even the entire course of American history may have tipped off its axis we so neatly affix it to now if one play O'Brien hadn't done what he had done. You gotta be curious now, I'm sure, so let's dive in. Johnny O'Brien came to Notre Dame as a young man from Los Angeles, California in 1927. He stood right around 6'2 and weighed about 185 pounds. 
And though he was destined for fame on the gridiron, he was actually a fantastic track athlete. Much, much better than at football, actually. So according to a 1937 issue of the Notre Dame alumnus magazine, O'Brien was actually the world record holder for some time in the 60-meter hurdles when he came in at 7.5 seconds. I mean, that is really fast. Again, world record holder fast. It was in 1928 that the modest O'Brien, then a sophomore, made his mark on Notre Dame football history, which in turn made its mark on American history. So first, the 1928 season was far from Rockney's best. The team actually went 5-4. and four. But by the time they played Army, the mighty Army squad at Yankee Stadium on November 10th that year, they already had two losses on the season. This was an uncharacteristic Rockney team. Army, on the other hand, had rattled off six straight victories to no losses and were the heavy favorites. But there were over 78,000 people in the stands to watch the game between the two Blue Bloods. Despite the season not being, obviously, Rockney's most successful, this particular game was famous for Coach Rockney's most stirring halftime speech. The one you could say all other halftime speeches are judged against. But with the game scoreless at halftime, Rock decided to gas the boys up with a little address. It went something like this. Well, boys, I haven't a thing to say. Played a great game. All of you. Great game. I guess we just can't expect to win them all. I'm going to tell you something I've kept to myself for years. None of you ever knew George Gipp. It was long before your time. But you know what a tradition he is at Notre Dame. And the last thing he said to me, Rock, he said, sometime when the team is up against it and the brakes are beating the boys, tell them to go out there with all they got and win just one for the Gipper. I don't know where I'll be then, Rock, he said, but I'll know about it, and I'll be happy. After Army took a 6-0 lead in the third quarter, Notre Dame got on the board after Jack Chevney, who was sadly killed during World War II, scored the game-tying touchdown. Afterwards, he audibly exclaimed, That was for the Gipper. The next part here is an excerpt from Andy's fantastic book. Quote, The score of the game was tied 6-6 late in the fourth quarter. Surprisingly, on fourth down, Rockney pulled the starting end and inserted, for the first time in this game, seldom played but speedy O'Brien in his place. O'Brien was an unknown and had no accomplishments of note on the football field, end quote. And wouldn't you know it, using Andy's words, the seldom played O'Brien enters the game. And <laughs> O'Brien had actually been shivering under a blanket for three quarters, because again, he hadn't seen a shred of action. But he hauled in an incredibly clutch 32-yard game-winning touchdown pass which spurred Notre Dame to a very unlikely 12-6 win over the highly acclaimed Army team. And it was a bit of a circus catch, if you will. Uh, O'Brien, at least, he was juggling the ball as he went to the ground and crossed the goal line. But uh, program lore states that O'Brien was the only player ever that Rock embraced openly on the sidelines. So Johnny becomes so famous across the land for this one play that, well, he was quickly nicknamed just that, One Play O'Brien. And he didn't do a ton on the football field as either a junior nor a senior. 
but he was a contributor. He was a solid member of the program. And the Notre Dame Football Review in 1930, his senior year, wrote the following, quote, The play which made Johnny O'Brien famous, the one in which he caught a pass to score the winning touchdown against Army in 1928, proved later to be a handicap to him. After that, whenever the smiling Californian was put into the game, the fans remembered his immortal feat and expected him to duplicate its brilliance. In always looking for the spectacular in his work, they often overlooked the quiet, capable football he played. End quote. But stop for a second and think. If Notre Dame hadn't won that football game, the game where one play hauled in that very famous pass, well, then they wouldn't have won one for the Gipper. And the most famous of all halftime speeches would have probably amounted to far less than a footnote in program history, and that may be generous. Gip, though amazing as he was, may have sunk into relative obscurity. Speaking candidly, relative to his peers, Gip may be one of the very best football players in Notre Dame history, but without that speech, that deathbed story, well, I'd bet he'd be, again, despite his brilliance and early demise, just another first-team All-American from a century ago. Without Gipp's legacy preserved by the halftime speech and improbable victory, I'd wager that the 1940 classic Knut Rockne All-American, starring Pat O'Brien as Rock and young actor Ronald Reagan as George Gipp, isn't made. That movie, of course, made the win one for the Gipper halftime speech an absolute staple in popular culture. But without that victory in the 1928 Army game, again spurred by one play O'Brien, you don't have this massive piece of program lore that obviously snowballed as the decades kept marching. But without this movie being made, you may not have Ronald Reagan, or at least not in the same form. Now, I know we are playing a great what-if game here, but he endeared audiences as the Gipper. I mean, hell, it was his nickname for his entire life, and he evoked it often. He leaned into it. The role was so identifiable with him, and it really helped both his future career in film, which, of course, led to his very robust career in politics, which not only included a stint as governor of California... But as I hope everyone's aware, two terms as president from 1981 to 1989. But again, imagine if one play O'Brien hadn't caught that pass. What a legacy. Sadly, O'Brien himself was killed in a car accident in 1937, less than a decade after his infamous play. At the time, he was serving as an assistant coach on Elmer Layden's staff, at Notre Dame. Layden, of course, was one of those famous four horsemen. And I know sometimes, again, that what-if game can be a bit uncomfortable to play. But what a chain of events. Thank you, Andy, for the idea, as well as the book, Men, Moments, and Myths. I have little doubt that more of our conversations will spur even more episode ideas. I'll be right back with show wrap after this, Irish fans. (laughs) 
All right, Irish fans. Pretty wild, but hey, there's another one in the books. Volume 2 of Alex's Irish Anecdotes. I hope you enjoyed it. Man, these are a lot of fun to put together. I have no doubt that there will be a Volume 3. It won't be the next episode. I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. It won't be the next episode, but it will be another episode, possibly even more, down the pike. But speaking of down the pike, what is coming up? Well, I have two episodes planned here for the month of August. It's going to be a very busy August. So as I was recording and writing this episode, uh, we got news that a Notre Dame standby, linebacker, team captain, member of the College Football Hall of Fame, Jim Lynch from the 1966 team had passed away. So I'm going to do an episode. I'm going to do it right. A tribute episode for Jim Lynch. And it's going to come hopefully off personal, even though I never met Jim. And boy, talk about regrets now. I never met Jim Lynch, but he is actually my first cousin one time removed. So he's my mom's first cousin. Uh, My whole brood actually originates, though I was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. My family originates from Lima, Ohio. That's where my parents were born and raised. So yeah, I'm going to do a Jim Lynch tribute episode. And again, uh, hopefully hopefully it comes off as personal, even though I, I didn't ever get a chance to meet him. But I've always grew up hearing about him and uh, very, very sad that he has passed away. So that's going to be one episode for August. The other is I'm going to bring in my pal and co-contributor, Matt Gehring, and we are going to do the annual season preview episode. So buckle in for that one. That's going to be a whole lot of fun. And those are pretty comprehensive. And this will actually be the first season preview episode that I have a guest, uh, or a co-host, I should say, on. So it's going to be a good time, rest assured, and we'll break down everything. My plan is to go through each position group and kind of just break down the schedule. Rest assured, Irish fans, it's going to be a really good time. So make sure you're on the lookout. August is going to be very, very busy. But in the interim here, I do sincerely hope you enjoyed this latest offering of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. These Irish anecdote episodes are truly a lot of fun to put together. And it's just, it's kind of cool just to fill in the gaps uh, of our Notre Dame knowledge with some of these like little stories, little anecdotes. And, you know, they're just a good amount of fun to do, a good bit of fun to do, I should say. So, again, I'd like to thank the Consensus All-Americans. Those are the folks who keep the lights on around these parts, and they are Mr. Michael Fyan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, and Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. Thank you, folks. I'd like to also thank... Mr. Joseph Rackus, whose song Knut Rockney serves as the show's theme song. If you would like to give him a spin or give Knut Rockney the song a spin, head to Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Music. Well, however you listen to music, he's there. If you'd like to join the Consensus All-Americans, head over to the virtual tip jars at paypal.me slash onwarddovictory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash podcast. Please know that any contributions to the show, whether it's listening to, sharing the episodes, talking about the episodes, or again, becoming a full-fledged Consensus All-American, is incredibly appreciated. Hey, you got strong thoughts? Send them my way. Onward to Victory Podcast at gmail.com. I'll read them on a future episode. So, like dust in the wind, I'm going to go ahead and let this one go. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.